I walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. I need you to get me your vote on November 4th. Let's get Brexit done. Time now to return to our series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day across the stations, we look back at an influential moment chosen by you, our listeners. And today we're looking at the Me Too movement. The Me Too hashtag was adopted as a rallying cry by thousands of women online in solidarity in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations and the movement was hailed as a breakthrough in the fight against sexual harassment. But not everyone was supportive of it. I'm joined now on the line by political journalist and author of What Women Want, Ella Whelan. Ella, you are someone who believes that the Me Too movement has gone too far. What do you mean by that? It's not necessarily that it's gone too far. I think that the the problem with the Me Too movement is that it didn't argue for an expansion of women's freedom. Instead, what it argued for was uh, protection of women. And while that might sound like a good thing and a thing that you that we want, especially when it comes to sexual harassment, the problem was that it began with, as something related, as you said, to Harvey Weinstein and the very serious allegations of rape and assault that were against him and kind of spun out into a much broader, much... Uh, more difficult to define discussion about what harassment means and with some people using the hashtag MeToo to describe things that really were extremely minor, like bad jokes and and calling things that harassment. And I I accept that there's a spectrum of of what people might describe as harassment, but you're saying that it pushed for protection rather than expansion of social freedom. Surely the freedom of being sort of sexually harassed does expand women's freedoms. Surely, Surely being, you know, protected from unwanted sexual attention does give women freedom that they don't otherwise have. Well, we know that safety and freedom are two very different things. And the way to look at it, I think the best way to kind of make people understand what that means is remember back in the, or not remember, but if we look back to the Victorian times when, and not so long ago, when women were given chaperones, when they were told that they needed to leave the room, when men were talking about serious things to protect their ears, uh, when we weren't allowed to go into public life and take jobs and do the things that men would do because they, it was deemed unsafe for us. That was very different from what we live now, which is broadly So you're saying terms, that those, women have those freedom. attempts to protect women didn't exactly set them free. But that's a, a poor analogy, isn't it? No one is suggesting that women need to be removed from social spaces or that women need to be put into sort of uh, harems alone and protected. What they're saying is out in the public domain, women need to be left alone. Uh, are you not contradicting yourself? I think it's not a poor analogy. I think it's a good analogy because if you look at what's taking place in the UK at the moment, there uh, the Parliament is trying to make misogyny a hate crime, which again, no one likes misogyny. It, it, you know, on the face of it, that's what's wrong with that, you might say. But the issue is what it entails would be that the law treats women differently to men. It, would it, what in material terms, what it would potentially mean is what police officers following women around to listen to see if anyone says anything misogynistic to them. I don't, I don't think that's, that's the case at all. Ella. Do you believe that racism should be a hate crime? I don't, I don't think hate crimes in themselves are a very useful way of dealing with prejudice. I think that the way to fight so, back against... So racism, anti, anti-Semitism, none of those things are hate crimes? 
if you, the way to fight back against prejudice, whether it be racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, things that are wrong in the world, is not to go through, not to use the law to try and insulate people, but to launch a political campaign for freedom. And if I stick with the what we're talking about in relation to Me Too and women's freedom, the way to fight back against the sexual harassment, the, the instances of sexual harassment that still exist at the moment, is to argue that women are rough, tough and strong enough to be able to deal with these th things themselves as much as possible. We're starting to see with the, the legacy of the Me Too movement for me has been a, a painting a picture of women as kind of like uh, little girls who need the white knight to ride in and save them. When in actual fact, if you look at the feminist movement over from you know the 60s, 70s, 80s onwards, it was full of hard-nosed women who were ready to fight for their freedom. I'd like to rekindle that rather than dwell on the rather, uh, at some times, it can seem like wet victim feminism that's spun out of the Me Too movement. All right. Uh, I don't know that I agree with any of that, but look, thank you for giving us your view this morning. That is Ella Whelan, their political journalist and author of What Women Want. Time to return to our series exploring Newstalk's 20 most influential moments of the last two decades. Every day across the station, we're looking back at an influential moment chosen by you, the Good News Talk listeners. And today we're looking at the Me Too movement, especially about how it has informed notions around consent, specifically amongst young people. With us on the line, we have got Lorna Fitzpatrick, who is the president of the Union of Students of Ireland, Dr Siobhan O'Higgins, who is a sexologist and research fellow with the Active Consent Programme at NUIG, and Holly Cairns, who is a Social Democrat teacher for Cork Southwest and their spokesperson for higher education. You're all very welcome to the programme. Siobhan, I'm going to come to you first of all. Me Too, bring us back to the origins of this because what caused Me Too has been going on forever and a day. But how the conversation started was very relevant to this. Yeah, well, it was um, um, important, well, um, famous people standing up and saying this happened to me and it becoming public instead of dealing with themselves or it becoming it not being available to everybody to know that this was happening. And once, once famous people started saying this happened to me, other people said me too. And then we were able to start a conversation about how people are being pressurized to have unconsenting sexual experiences um, in many, many areas of life, not just in the film industry where it started off, but people have been saying this but not being heard. So once it became into the public domain, then we were able to have a conversation about it. And having that conversation has started on many different levels. So people are saying in schools, in universities, hey, let's talk about this. How can we make sure that if anybody ever wants to be intimate with someone else, that it is mutually consensual, mutually pleasurable and done safely. And so we've come a long, long way in a very short time, really, which is just fantastic. Holly Cairns, uh, I, I showed a clip on the telly a couple of weeks ago um, from the RTE archive of what people thought when Mary Robinson became president. This was 1990 when we all thought we were kind of relatively cultured and had moved on. And some of the toxic masculinity coming through was appalling. Um, were you surprised at the amount of men that got behind this? I mean, here we are some 30 years later and Me Too was as much a movement supported by men as it was women. I'm not surprised at all. Um, most men are, are feminists and sometimes we hear it kind of a very loud um, minority and, you know, that can give us a bad impression of all men. It's certainly not the case. Um, but the Me Too movement has been so helpful in that sense. And 
And you were just saying, you know, initially it was brought about to empower women through empathy um, and especially young and vulnerable women. But when prominent women came forward and shared their stories to highlight the epidemic, it really showed the scale of the problem, which is important. And equally important was it inspired other victims and survivors to tell their story and made them feel able to do that. Um, I think it was quite an awakening moment for society through solidarity. You know, girls and women felt they could come forward and tell their stories. Um, And it's really helping victims to not blame themselves for sexual violence committed against them. Um, Mm. And that's a big problem that we see that, you know, uh, we have lots of figures and data, really staggering data about the amount of um, sexual assault and rape and sexual abuse in Ireland and and worldwide. But, you know, we know that it's probably not even that accurate because so many victims don't want to come forward. And that, you know, there's so much that needs to be addressed in relation to that. There's cultural and societal problems in our legal system. But when you think about it, we have... A, you know, a justice system that often treats victims like they're on trial. Um, we see them degraded and exposed and, and often discredited by a misogynistic legal system. And I suppose the reality is that we have so much work to do because we can't keep expecting victims to defy the odds when they're still so stacked up against them. And that's a really important point that the Me Too movement has done so much, but we still have so far to go. Um, yeah. And like you said, most people are on board with this, but we still have structures and in many ways, a culture and society that needs to change with the times. Lorna Fitzpatrick of the Union of Students in Ireland. Um, I, I, I remember years ago, long before me too, uh, my, my alma mater in UCC and the law department were giving consent classes to first years, um, which struck me as odd because I remember distinctly learning about criminal law in first year and, and understanding what was meant by consent in the legal context. But it, it, it was a precursor of programmes that have been rolled out across universities right now. Um, and, and they became particularly relevant after Me Too. Is that younger generation, I mean, they, they in, in, in a weird way, um, they, they this needed to be explained in, in great detail. And, and that was something we hadn't given a huge amount of thought to prior to this. Yes, I think so. And, and in fairness, UCC and other institutions have been really, really good in trying to lead the way um, in, in terms of um, consent education and so on. Um, I think it, there is a, a recognition there now that for many, the first time that young people heard about consent um, or general sexual health information was really from students' unions and, and from staff within institutions when they got to third level. Um, and that was the case for many years. But we are seeing that change now, which is brilliant. And I do think there is a better understanding and awareness of consent now. Now, the education programs, such as those consent classes, have most definitely helped. But I think we need to ensure that the same is true across broader society. I think that um, in terms of colleges, there's a, a great opportunity to engage with, with students at third level. But we need to look at that earlier in education through RSE education um, and also in terms of broader society so that we all understand consent, mm. but also respect people's yeses and their noes. There was a paradox that it was the arrival of social media, unregulated social media, where where anything can be said and is said, um, gave rise, Holly, to to Me Too. It was a hashtag. Uh, Very rarely things in life should be solved by the addition of a pound sign. Uh, But in this case, it did. And and social media gave a voice um, to counter a lot of the negatives the negative male voices that were out there. And inevitably, they were male voices that we were talking about. It it was a weird thing that social media both created and helped deal with the issue. It was. And social media, um, for all its benefits, has a lot of cons as well. So we've seen how it's really benefited. It did provide that platform and made people feel like they weren't alone. We saw that it was 
an epidemic that so many women had experienced this and that was great we also see how it can you know not work in our favor as well when you know we saw the recent scandal around image-based sexual abuse and social media has you know sort of facilitated that as well and that comes back to consent too and it's really important what Lorna was saying that we you know about consent and we don't have education about that we shouldn't be learning about it from students unions and universities we should be learning about this from primary school all the way through secondary school and have a heightened awareness of it when we get to college and it's also so important that where consent isn't present that the law steps in so when there was these it was 140,000 plus images of women um, and young girls so that's child pornography as well um, there wasn't a law in place to protect these people um, and, you know, that says a lot, you know, our, our, our laws and our politics have to keep up with society. And at the mm. moment, they're just just about doing it. And, and, you know, that legislation was before the Justice Committee yesterday and we're making progress and, and the law will step in where consent isn't present in that instance. But we just have so far to go. I mean, you spoke about the the kind of response when Mary Robinson got in, like it's 2020 now and we're still dealing with issues like that. We're still in a yeah. situation where there's been more TDs in the door called John than there has been women. You know, um, there's a lot and to I do. Think, and I, I, you're, you're, you're definitely the first Holly um, and, and uh, you're not the only person in the country with that name. So I, that's that's reflective and it's all right. Siobhan, can I ask you about the other side of this? Um, and, and Holly referenced the, the basic fact that the majority of men who are listening right now uh, are, are decent, responsible people. The vast majority are yeah. decent, responsible people. Absolutely. The, the Me Too kind of pushed it a good bit. Um, and it did make some men uncomfortable. Um, and it was because it, they felt as if they were being tarnished with a very bad brush. I, I, was there a risk that it overcorrected slightly? Um, and, and it may have alienated men who would have been advocates previously who all of a sudden felt as if they were being victimised in some way and and all lumped in together with the, the particularly onerous characters who, who were exposed by the movement. Yeah, well, that's, that is a problem that men feel, um, that the people are accusing them and it does alienate young men, especially it, that is one of the issues in terms of education. It's an education for everybody. And as Holly says, if we start the education in primary school and look at how to deal with rejection and understanding one's own boundaries, and it's about respect, and so that you're providing the education that people aren't then looking for other sources of education like pornography or sexual media, all the messages that young people get from sexual media on all different levels, from songs, from, from in... Uh, on the internet and social media as well. And it's very difficult to keep everybody in, engaged because it's not about victim blaming or accusing anybody of anything. It's about being respectful for every human being and to actually explore the fact that, you know, when people want to be um, intimate with someone else, it's, it's about respect, it's about mutual enjoyment. And a lot of the education has not ever mentioned those kind of aspects. It's about desire and pleasure and it's not just about making sure you don't get pregnant or you don't get an STI okay. in the education. And if we can bring in all of that, then that includes everybody. And, and to say that it's not compulsory either, because there's all sorts of pressure on young people coming from the sexual media out there to, to be sexualized, and they don't know how to be sexual. Yeah, finally, Lorna, if I can turn to you, um, I, I, I can't see anybody, but I'm guessing, given that you're the president of the Union of Students in Ireland, you're probably one of the younger contributors <laughs> in the battle. Um, it's a generational thing more than anything else. And, and every generation like, sheds the baggage of the one before. Of your male peers, of your contemporaries, um, 
have have they really taken this on board or is it one of those things that in female company they'll say one thing but in male company they'll still say another I don't think it's necessarily just down to a generational thing. I think there is a, a broader issue, and I think Holly referenced it with the the end in image based sexual abuse as well. Um, that it it's not that we're we're looking at one particular generation or one particular cohort of people. Um, I think we need to all um have uh, have a growth experience here in terms of our understanding and our awareness, um, and also our recognition of of what is right and what is wrong, and and um we need to ensure that there are supports and in place to help people to get to. That that place um, and to, to understand what this means. So I think the vast majority of, of students um, are, are on a learning journey with this, as we say, um, but the vast majority are, are very clued in and are very aware as to what is right and what is wrong. And I think the okay. educational elements, such as the consent classes and so on, really, really help to achieve that. Lorna Fitzpatrick, President of the USI, Dr Siobhan O'Higgins from the NUID School of Psychology and Holly Cairns, a Social Democrat TD. Thank you very much for joining us. Lots more to come on the Me Too movement across the day here on News Talk. And we're continuing with News Talk's reflection of the uh, 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Today, we're looking at the social movement, which really uh, took off on social media platforms right across the world, the Me Too movement. And uh, joining us here on the programme is Abby. Thanks for being with us on Lunchtime Live today. You're a student, um, Abby. How are you? What, what did you make of the, the movement? Um, I think it was brilliant. I have to be completely honest. Um I think it was um, a huge step forward for um, talking publicly about um, sexual assault and harassment. Um, I think I know it was met with quite a bit of backlash at the time, um, but I think overall, um, over the past few years, it definitely it really paved the way for um, being able to talk about all incidences of harassment and assault um, much more casually. I think before it, if you were talking about an assault. Or, or any kind of incident, um, it was quite hushed. Or you were telling, you know, telling someone in. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I I know what you mean, but I suppose it. Yeah. It probably made people stop as well and look at their reaction and language, um, to Absolutely. to incidents or to things that happen. Do you know what I think it made um, a great strive for is. Um, casual harassment and assault. I think it made a huge difference in, because I think before the movement, people thought of harassment and assault as these big incidents, these, you know, walking alone at night and someone coming out of a dark alley or, you know, being completely drunk at a party. They thought of these cliched incidences and that was all it was to them. And um, I think everyone, not just women, men, women, everyone was able to come forward during the Me Too movement and say, no, actually it happens on a a crowded bus on my way to work. No, it happens at work. It happens when I'm bringing my kids to the playground. It happens literally everywhere. Um, And it can happen to anyone. I've noticed a lot more um, I, when I'm talking with people my age particularly, I'm in my early 20s, um, there's a lot more kind of free, uh, free talk about the smaller things that would bother you okay. um, as well as of course the bigger things like I would have had several incidences in my teens um, where I kind of oh, something would make me uncomfortable but you'd never think you would think you were being dramatic if you were to think that was that was harassment and you would think oh no they were just being nice or they were just trying to make conversation whereas now I look back and I'm like 
no, it was okay that I felt uncomfortable. Mm. That person shouldn't have done that. Okay. And I think that's been a huge part huge of all, all of this. Yeah. I'm going to bring Adele in as well. Adele um, joins us here too on, on Lunchtime Live this afternoon. Do you agree um, with Abby, Adele? Do you think that really the Me Too movement over the past number of years has just really brought about greater awareness? Absolutely. I, I, I definitely agree with Abby. It definitely is a step forward, as Abby said. You know, it's a significant change um, from when I was in my 20s, like Abby is now. I'm 47 now. So I have seen a significant change. Um, you know, for the first time, I felt part of, or at least witnessed to, to a, a magnificent social change in society where girls like Abby, even younger than Abby, and women like me, even older, could actually address situations that were making us uncomfortable, that we tended up to that point to sweep under the carpet and not speak out loud for fear of being seen as dramatic or over-analyzing a situation. You know, it brought the conversation out in the open and raised a level of consciousness that definitely hadn't been there before, Mm. hadn't been there prior to the Me Too movement. So it gave a platform, I think, to women to actually address the issue that has been there since the dark ages, there since, you know, medieval times all the way through. Right. You know? Do you think has it gone far enough? There is an element. It definitely has gone far enough as in it has started the conversation. Yeah, okay, it has yeah. changed. Millions of women have had an opportunity to speak about it. Where it falls short, and, and as Abby was referring to the ads there with gov.ie and putting out these awareness campaigns. Yeah. Of, and they're actually very powerful. Know, the, the, uh, I've heard a few of them here even, you know, on, on News Talk throughout the station and they really, they really make are, you think. You know, and they bring it into, you know, it makes it real, it makes it relatable, it makes it... It makes people aware of it that might not have been aware of it before and puts it into their minds that, oh, God, I saw an incident like that. And I did think your man was just, you know, a little bit eager, but I didn't call it out. I didn't make the person accountable for the inappropriate behavior. Mm, But now with this, there is an opportunity to start a conversation. When you asked, has it gone far enough? Where I'd say that it hasn't, like, for instance, if you look at the facts, one in three women worldwide will have experience. So there's three of us on the phone now, right? One of us, and probably three of us, one of us has definitely experienced this sexual harassment, has definitely experienced something that we could hashtag me too. And I suspect it is all three of us, right? Okay. So if you look at that, we are the only country in the, U- in the EU who have this anarchaic legal system. And when I say that, it's that... If one or two of us or even three of us were to make a complaint and to bring something to the attention of an authority, let's say it's the Gardaí, let's say it's the, the Work Relations Commission or whatever, we are then put in a situation where we have to prove that it happened. And there are no guidelines on questions that can be asked of us or inferences that can be made to us about our... Yeah, well, I, I know uh, that, we've, I know that we, we've spoken previously, Adele, to some of the, um, the various different groupings like the, you know, even the Rape Crisis Centre. And I know that, you know, they mm. certainly um, provide support and there's other organisations too in, in cases uh, like that. Can I just bring in Caroline West as well? Caroline is um, a sex educator and host of the Glow West podcast and joins us here too on Lunchtime Live this afternoon. Do you think has the Me Too movement, Caroline, been really one of the most influential um, moments or movements over the past couple of years? Absolutely, yeah. It's been incredible to see women coming together and saying enough is enough and to really list and name 
what has gone on for so long and it's really changed the, the language that we've had to really understand what sexual violence is and you know for some people I've thought maybe oh well rape and sexual assault are just you know it's violent rape it's someone being held down and it's actually there's so many different forms of sexual violence that maybe people before me too mightn't have named it as sexual violence but now we have that little bit more awareness and we think okay you know, we see how prevalent this is across society. And like one of your previous guests that were saying that um, perpetrators can be people in relationships. They're people known to mm. us. It's not just a stranger in the dark alley, which we might have thought of before, which makes things a little uncomfortable when we have to say, my partner, my husband did this to me. You know, that's very difficult for people to say. And um, But, you know, we are kind of getting there and understanding how widespread this is, mm. unfortunately, and yeah. hopefully this means that it will not be as widespread. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because when we often look at the, the figures and the statistics that come out and, and we talk about them and, you know, while it may not, we, we don't necessarily know that when each year when the, the figures come out in terms of the number of um, cases or incidents that have been reported to the Gardaí, we can say for certain that it, there's been a jump in the number of figures or an increase in the number of figures. It might just be that more people are actually coming forward and reporting it and I just wonder if the likes of the Me Too movement and conversations like this and previous conversations that have gone before us today have maybe just given people you know the the awareness and the knowledge and the empowerment you know to know that well I can actually go and report this because that thing that happened to me was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. Absolutely and and reporting it is one option as well but we know unfortunately that not enough cases really go to court and that the the court process can be re-traumatising as well for many people Mm. but for some people, it's okay if if they aren't in that place where they can bring it to court, but it may be if they can name it to themselves and maybe they can contact support services to try and, you know, resolve it for themselves and in their own life and kind of move forward then in that case. Because if you look back at Irish society, like this was absolutely prevalent in our society we didn't have support services and you know like and maybe just legal in y- marriage and so well, my, yeah and maybe just even the as you say too the 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 knowledge you know to, to know about it and where to go and how yeah. to report it and even and, and as Adele mentioned there a few moments ago just to know that you have that support through the process as well um just maybe on a final point Caroline because we're, we're continuing this series here on the station over the next um you know two, two and a half or three weeks and we're looking at a variety of, of different uh, moments we've had brexit this week and we're talking I'm sure too about covid at some point but the me too movement is something that really started a couple of years ago and and maybe in particular in, in more recent years but um just do you think it's gone far enough or could more be done no I think there's a lot more to be done I think we need to be very inclusive of different races different ages we need to be inclusive of sex workers in this conversation they were left out of the general me too movement um, when porn stars came forward about their sexual assault as well but I think it's really laying the groundwork for us building a consent culture in Ireland and what I mean by that is like normalizing consent education at a young age and, you know, calling out sexual harassment when we see it instead of enabling it or enabling victim blaming or, you know, we saw with the images that were dumped um, last last couple of weeks and, and people saying, well, don't take nudes in the first place. And we've been able to talk in the media about, well, that's actually victim blaming. So calling that out and dismantling what we have as a rape culture and building a consent culture instead where we respect people's autonomy their consent, you know, we're not judging them for engaging in sexual activity. Okay, Caroline West, Abby and Adele, thanks for joining us here on Lunchtime Live this afternoon. This very conversation around the uh, Me Too movement and its impact, it'll continue across News Talk throughout the course of the afternoon.
And it's time now uh, to look back again at some of the most important issues of the last 20 years. And today it's the Me Too movement. Was it just a Hollywood phenomenon or did it enable people around the world to speak out about sexual assault? Nolene Blackwell is CEO of the Rape Crisis Centre and joins us now on News Talk. Afternoon, Nolene. Good afternoon, Sean. I was actually, I never knew this, that the, the, the actual phrase Me Too uh, dates from 2006, I think. It does. There was a, a, an activist woman. She, she was working in the area of sexual violence and domestic violence. And a little 13-year-old came up to her once and, and said um, that she had been sexually assaulted. And Tarana Burke, who was the, the woman who brought the phrase, said, me too. And then she worked out that this was so important for people who were speaking about things that were almost unspeakable about to say, to, to have a little kind of, it's like, it was like a little code at that stage. But it really took off then uh, again in October 2017 when Alyssa Milano, who was an actor, she got, uh, Harvey Weinstein was uh, in the news for sexual abuse uh, of many kinds uh, and he was only accused at that stage. But the New York Times had come out with this expose. Mm. Several others had been stopped before, but this came out. And she just said, if you have, on top of another tweet, she just said in a tweet, she said, if you have suffered sexual abuse or harassment, reply with me too. And she didn't even have the hashtag. And like she said, she went to bed and the following, she looked at her daughter, tucked her up and went to bed. And the following morning when she got up, there had been like 55 or maybe 550, I can't remember, but tens of thousands of replies already. And it, it then became the hashtag. And what it struck me, it was kind of like a dam at that stage. You had a whole lot of people who literally didn't know uh, that the same thing had happened to other people, who didn't know it was okay to complain about sexual harassment and abuse. And in some ways, because of the lack of systems to deal with it properly, the dam burst and Twitter was assaulted. It was like, you know, it was like wave after wave of groups of people, um, singular people coming out saying me too. And certainly because a Dublin Rape Crisis Centre runs the National 24-Hour Helpline, we heard it from people. We heard people saying this is... This is what we needed to be able to say. We, we now know we're not alone. This wasn't just us, and we know we weren't to blame. And so that's where Me Too, with the hashtag, came into, um, came into its own, came into a, a point where, where uh, anyone working on social media or uh, who was on social media, which by 2017 was you know, well-established and several platforms, they were able to use that Me Too platform to say, this happened to me, all the hurt, all the upset, all the wrong that was done to me, I can now say I too was a victim of that hurt. And mm. that was stage one of it. Um, I, I want to ask you about men, Nolene, from two points of view. Yes. Did, were you contacted by any men who had suffered uh, uh, these kind of assaults? Uh, and B, some men, uh, um, you know, got yes. a bit antsy about this, about all oh, men were being convicted before they'd done yes. anything. Exactly. Where was the due process? So in terms of men, uh, the thing was that at the start, actually, very, very few men said me too. And one of the things that we certainly recognize in the Rape Crisis Centre is 
that very often it can nearly be harder for men to recognize that they've been abused or to speak about it, that in some way, you know, some men nearly considered it unmanly. And I think that would be the case because they too are stuck with stereotypes. But over time, certainly, men have also come out. They have explained about the abuse of power, about the way in which uh, they have been put in positions where they had to put up with abuse or harassment, simply sometimes just to keep a job. But Mm. the other point, I I swear, the hashtag MeToo movement wasn't a week old uh, before I was being contacted by people who said, what about the people who are being named? What about due process? What about a fair trial? Why don't people, if they're so hurt, why don't they use the systems that are there? And in some ways, there, I, I had to say there were two bits to that. First of all, it's that dam thing again. Ideally, a dam will have a sluice gate, you know, a way in which water can escape mm. when there's a flood. But in this case, there was no system. There was no sluice gate. And inevitably, in the, in the wash of the flood of people who suddenly recognized that this was wrong, it was abusive, and that it happened to others, undoubtedly, there were people named where it was no way to actually get justice for anyone or to get a proper resolution. But the other thing that it pointed out was that for many, many years, decades before that, those who had suffered the abuse had no access to due process, had no access to a fair way of talking about their abuse. So undoubtedly, there was was an overreaction in some ways. But the overreaction happened because there had been no proper way for people to express their hurt, to deal with it, to confront it. I mean, Weinstein was a classic example of somebody who sued any paper, who ever thought to bring something up, who who threatened people that they'd never work in this town again. But he wasn't the only one. And it's not just to go back to your original question. Not by a long joke. Exactly. And it wasn't just Hollywood. Mm. It was all over all over the world. I, I want People to ask you one last... Sorry, I'm running out of time, Nolene, but j- j- yeah, just sorry. finally and, and briefly, even though, I suppose, obviously it made us all aware of the massive scope of this throughout most societies, throughout Irish society, did it change anything from a legal point of view? If you're sexually harassed today, uh, if you're being sexually harassed in your office today, is it any better? In truth, we have we do not necessarily have better solutions. Some people are making um, more efforts to put a better system in place rather than the policies and procedures that worked for nobody along the way. But we know from a whole lot of things. And I mean, I will name Evino Nihulavorn's mm. uh, experience with UCD as well as an obvious example of where even big institutions are not working well. But there are better ways out there. We can make better systems and structures. Certainly, we're working on a project in relation to that at the moment. So are many other people, because it is possible, actually, to put in place systems that allow people to talk about something that's so intimate and so sort of, in some ways, you feel so awful having to to explain this in the first place, but also to put in place systems so that workplaces, uh, places of congregation are healthy places where people can make these complaints safely and where they can be examined in a safe way and where the abuse will stop and that that will be we're not there yet by any means Nolene thanks a million for speaking with us today that was Nolene Blackwell there CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre
Turning now to our series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades, as decided by you, the News Talk listener. So every day across the station, we're looking back at one of them. And today, as you will have heard from Kira and Shane and Pat, Andrea and Sean, we're talking about Me Too and the Me Too, Me Too movement. And I'm delighted to say in that context, I'm joined now on the line by Gloria Allred, who is a leading US woman's rights lawyer. Uh, Gloria, you're very welcome to The Hard Shoulder. It's great to talk to you. Um, I suppose there, there's so many different strands to this that, that, that we could focus on. But one of the names, one of the perpetrators' names that's synonymous with all of this is, is Harvey Weinstein. And you played a, a fairly central role in, in that court case. You might talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, in the criminal case filed against Harvey Weinstein in New York, uh, there were two uh, uh, victims for whom charges were filed. I represented one of them. Her name was Mimi Haley. Uh, Ultimately, uh, she testified. She was very courageous. And Mr. Weinstein was convicted of criminal sexual assault against Mimi. And in addition to that, he was convicted... Uh, of unlawful sexual intercourse against another victim whom I do not represent. Uh, He was sentenced to 20 years uh, on the charges uh, in reference to Mimi and three years on the charges in reference to the other victim. He is now serving his 23 year prison in uh, prison in New York. However, coming up, a matter of fact, uh, on December 11th, he is going to face an extradition hearing. And at that hearing, the Los Angeles prosecutors will seek to extradite Mr. Weinstein from New York to Los Angeles to stand trial here. Now, here in Los Angeles, which is where I'm located right now, uh, I do represent two of the victims in the Mm. criminal case in Los Angeles. Uh, One of them is Lauren Young. Lauren was also a witness in New York. uh, And we call it a Molyneux witness. But in addition, uh, she is now a victim for whom charges are filed in L.A. And also, I represent another victim in L.A. for whom uh, charges have been filed, but we are not disclosing her name. Further, uh, there are, uh, Mimi has filed a civil lawsuit in New York uh, against Mr. Weinstein, and I also represent her mm. on that. And uh, and so there's a lot going on in the Weinstein case. Yeah, and, and look, his, his conviction and the upcoming court case, obviously hugely, hugely important to the, to the victims in all of this. But how important, when you take a step back, is this case symbolically and in the context of the whole Me Too movement? I think it's very, very important. Uh, I mean, I've been practicing law for 44 years uh, in Los Angeles and throughout the country. And uh, we have been helping women to and victims to have their voice. For example, I represented 33 victims of uh, Bill Cosby famous television star who's also been convicted. Uh, And I also represented witnesses in that criminal case. But when the Harvey Weinstein story emerged, it gained quite a bit of uh, extra traction because there were so many A-list celebrities 
uh, movie stars, television stars who came forward and said, yes, he also assaulted me mm. uh, when I was seeking employment with him. And so, of course, when celebrities get involved and, you know, and, and, and it's it gains extra interest. But I will note that with the exception of one person who is an actor, whom I also represented in the New York case, Annabella Shora, who very famous for having appeared in The Sopranos and in many other movies as well. She's a very talented uh, actor and very courageous witness. Um, you know, most of the people in the, in, in the actual criminal cases are not celebrities, but I think that's why it gained so much traction. And then there was a hashtag on the internet, yeah. hashtag me too. So a lot of people went on that hashtag and told what they said was what happened to them. Sometimes they had never disclosed mm. it previously to anyone. Uh, you mentioned the Bill Cosby case. Uh, take a quick listen here to, to, to one of Bill Cosby's victims speaking. This at a press conference that, that you organized. Mr. Cosby greeted me and handed me a cappuccino telling me that he made me my favorite coffee. And after I drank it, I felt dizzy and lost consciousness. I could not open my eyes. I couldn't move or say anything. I felt something warm on my legs. And I blacked out. I woke up to him clapping his hands saying, Daddy says, wake up. Yeah, some really horrifying stories there, Gloria. And I suppose what... what 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 was a feature of me too was that these stories weren't rare and they were knocking around for for so many years. Whether it's about Bill Cosby and a lot of them recounted in Chasing Cosby, which is a great book and a great podcast series as well. If people haven't listened to it, and with Harvey Weinstein. Now, when you look back, and I don't want to say we're on the other side of it, it's probably still a process that's happening. But but now that a lot of it has come out, why do you think it was that these things were such open secrets in Hollywood? Right. And and well, I I think that a lot of people knew that he was, you know, having, you know, getting involved with women, but mm. whether they knew that he was actually drugging and then sexually assaulting them is another question. By the way, this could not be a more timely topic because yesterday the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, heard oral argument uh, from Bill Cosby's attorney who is seeking to reverse his conviction. And one of the, and, and also heard argument from the prosecutor who would like the conviction not to be reversed, but one of the two major issues argued yesterday before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court were the admission of testimony from Me Too witnesses called in Pennsylvania prior bad act witnesses. And I represented a majority of them and they testified uh, for the most part, that Mr. Cosby had many years ago also drugged or uh, sex and sexually assaulted them. And now uh, his Mr. Cosby's attorney is saying and, and has a said and has also said previously that they should not have been permitted to testify, that it was prejudicial to Mr. Cosby to allow them to testify, that uh, he was never charged with crimes for that because they had never reported to law enforcement 
Uh, and so this is a very important issue, and yeah. the justices are going to decide it very soon as to whether on this basis, you know, whether what they testified to was more probative than prejudicial, in other words, more likely to lead yeah. to the truth than prejudice Mr. Cosby, and whether his conviction should be reversed. Uh, uh, Gloria, this is something that me too, and the whole thing came as something of a shock, I think, to a lot of people, uh, but it, it, maybe not to you, because this is an area you've been working in and mm-hmm. campaigning in for so many years. And I know you've recounted your own pretty chilling account of, of sexual violence and its aftermath as well. Exactly. And, you know, it's because of my life experience that I am a, a feminist and have been a feminist lawyer for 44 years. Uh, because, you know, we learn a lot from our own life experience. It was shocking to me that there is so much gender violence still among women. That's the bad news, that there's so much victimization of women. The good news, of course, is the courage is contagious. Mm. Uh, Empowerment is contagious. So, so many women all over the world are now coming forward. They're going to attorneys. They're saying, what are my options? What can I do? Is it too late to make a police report? Can I have a civil lawsuit? Can I do a, can you help me with a confidential settlement against the accuser? And we have done thousands of confidential settlements because some people do want their privacy. They don't want to have to file a lawsuit. They don't want to have to go to the police, but they would like accountability through a settlement. So yes, uh, you know, I do have a passion for justice. Uh, because of what I suffered in my life, uh, but when I well, you know, what did when you I suffer of gender violence and rape? I didn't know that this was something suffered by so many other people. I did think that no one would believe me at that time, uh, so I didn't report it. It was in Mexico by a doctor, and um, I was in my twenties, uh, and I was not a lawyer, and I didn't know anything about the law. Mm. So I can understand where a lot of victims believe that no one will believe them against the word of someone who is powerful. Someone who's powerful doesn't just mean a celebrity in Hollywood. Yeah, It can be someone who's powerful in your life. You know, a doctor, a teacher, a priest. Uh, you know, it can be someone, a, a sports coach. Uh, it can be someone in business, your employer. Yeah. And so uh, we're helping to empower women. And Gloria, is that is that the positive legacy of Me Too? Courageous or uh, uh, how did you describe it? A contagious courageousness. Yes. yes and it, yes, courage is contagious. Uh, empowerment is. So we're seeking accountability that it's uh, I always say who should bear the cost of the wrong? Should it be the wrongdoer or should it be the victim? In my view, clearly, it should not be the victim who bears the cost of the wrong. It should be the wrongdoer. So we literally make him pay the consequences. So, for example, in a confidential settlement, he has to pay a certain amount to the victim for the wrong. Uh, We, by the way, won a a very large case in California in December in a jury verdict for one victim of sexual harassment against a billionaire we won a verdict of $58,250,000. And that uh, was a very important case. A few months earlier, another jury awarded another victim whom we represented, a victim of sexual harassment by the same billionaire. And another jury awarded in excess of $5 million. So now juries are beginning to believe Mm -hmm. women when we have evidence that we can present 
Yeah. And they are making awards. And I think that's very exciting and empowering. And this is a new day for victims. They're not going to suffer in silence anymore. They're going to stand up and make the wrongdoer pay the consequences in one form or another. Gloria, an absolute pleasure to speak to you here on The Hard Shoulder. Gloria Allred, US women's rights lawyer, one of the leading lights in the Me Too uh, movement. (laughs)